All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Public Speakers Podcast. Today, I'm here with Lisa Brait. Wait, Brait. Wait, wait. We were rehearsing off the air how to how to get her name right. Um, but Lisa is a public speaking professional and coach. We're gonna dive deep into her background, her history, and try to get some of the best tips that she has on public speaking communication out of her for free on this podcast. Um, so Lisa, let everyone know who you are, what your background is, how you got into some of this stuff, and then we'll dive deep into some questions. Sure. So it is pronounced Braithwaite, Lisa Braithwaite. If you haven't heard that before, it's because it's an English name. And when I go to England, everybody can pronounce it. It's fantastic, but not so much here. Uh, I've had a public speaking coaching and training business since 2005. And I uh, got started, I, I mean, really, I'll tell you the, the nutshell version of how I got started in the business is that I got laid off three times in four years. Wow. From what were you doing previously? Yeah, so my previous career was in the nonprofit sector. And I did just happen to be teaching, training, speaking, uh, doing community outreach and advocacy and all the things that, that I now teach people how to do. Right. But I got laid off three times in four years. And I was like, that's it. I'm not doing nonprofits anymore. I'm going to start my own business because at least I sink or I sink or swim based on my own efforts, yep. Yep. not somebody running out of money for my position. So that's how I got to this particular point. So that was from 2000 to 2005. That's when you kept getting laid off. And then in 2005, you made the decision to. Switch. Yeah, actually, yes. Two th between 2000 and 2004. Got you. And then I had a little, I had a little overlap. I had another business for a while where I made jewelry like this. Beautiful. And <laughs> um, yeah, they, the, the two businesses overlapped for a couple of years, but in the long run, it, it I realized this was going to be where the income was in coaching and training, <laughs> not so much selling earrings for $30 a piece. So so yeah. you sort of got into uh, the public speaking and training business kind of out of force in terms of you were doing a lot of this stuff in your old jobs, but after you kept getting laid off, you decided that you might as well die on your own sword and really just take it on your own. Ooh, die on my own sword, yes. It's not my saying. I'm not going to take credit for that. I love it. I love it. Um, what Before we get into like all the stuff about public speaking, I just want to talk a little bit about the risk and entrepreneurial sort of spirit you had, because I think that is very synonymous to the risk that a lot of people who are afraid of speaking for the first time have to ultimately go into. What was it like going out on your own and, and being your own boss? Interestingly, uh, it wasn't that hard. Uh, maybe because uh, I am a born optimist. So I just always see the possibilities. And it was really my husband who suggested this. So at the time, I was also running a nonprofit. So I didn't just work for nonprofits. I had founded my own. Right. And so I had been running that nonprofit for eight years. So already I had some experience kind of taking a risk and jumping in and trying to get something funded and, and so forth. Right. And when I got laid off for the, the the final time, I was, you know, looking for part-time jobs. I was online thinking that I could do something part-time while still running my nonprofit. And it was my husband who said, why don't you just start a business? Hmm. Because we had both had all these ideas for years about businesses that we wanted to run. And um, he was the one that was like, you know, you could get paid like $10 an hour for part-time work, or you could just start a business. 
And um, I mean, it helps to have a, a partner who's working full time right, right. so that in the beginning, um, in the beginning, I could take, you know, a little bit of time to get ramped up. But so, I, you know, for I guess what, what I would say is because of my personality type, I just jump in and do things and I don't necessarily think of the consequences. Uh, but I think that's kind of a good trait for entrepreneurs to, to cultivate. Right. Just and, and one of my business coaches says everything is a test. And so I really live by that. Everything is a test. I am willing to jump in and try stuff and give it a chance. And if it doesn't work, then OK. It's better than living with the the fear of the what if that could have happened if you did take the risk. Exactly. So, I mean, that that's, that is probably my biggest, uh, you know, my biggest advice to entrepreneurial people in general is just um, take the risk. And if you're risk averse, if you're a person who is risk averse, you're not going to enjoy entrepreneurship. You're not going to because it is there. There's an ebb and flow, and there's a feast and famine. And no matter how experienced you are, how long you've been in the industry, things change. Things go up and down, and so uh, you have to really be able to to withstand the the uncertainty a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think entrepreneurship it's it's not even only about business. It's just about being someone who does something on their own. Like even this podcast, right? It's, completely started by myself and i'm excited to find guests i'm excited to get the microphone set up i'm excited to have these conversations (laughs) right right. because i'm naturally a person who's excited to start things and i think if you're someone who's excited to start things you are already in the nonprofit sector it's an easy transition uh right now keep in mind some people are really good at starting things but don't like to continue things that is also very true uh, that's, that, where, that's where the hustle comes in at that point. Yeah, I have I have a little bit of that going on with me too, where I get I get bored of things really easily. Right. But again, when you're when you are when you like starting things yourself, um, you know, you can always figure out, well, okay, maybe I want to keep doing this podcast or this business or whatever, but I'm a little bored. Right. So what new thing can I start or what new thing can I add or what can I, you know, integrate? Right. And um, well, having that desire to start things is, is still a good place to start, but you also have to be able to continue things. Yeah, and, and it also makes sense now that we're on this topic to, to make sure that if you're bored, maybe the thing that you started wasn't the most, most passionate thing that you were about. Right. Meaning, like, if you're not willing to take in the 20-hour the days to do it, which is, like, objectively boring, but you don't feel some type of satisfaction in that, then maybe it's just not the right thing that you really want to get into. Right. And that's partly what happened with my jewelry business is right. that it, it was fun when I started because I liked making things. But when it turned out that I had to make things, it became a uh, it became drudgery. It became right. it wasn't fun anymore. And um, there wasn't enough of a return for me to enjoy cranking out massive quantities of jewelry and then schlepping all this stuff to craft shows all the time. You know, it just, it, it really wasn't the best fit for me. Right. So right. it was fun while it lasted. And now I just do it for myself. <laughs> so this, uh, this seven minute discussion on entrepreneurship should be a good segue <laughs> into the fact that yeah. I found Lisa from LinkedIn. Uh, and in her LinkedIn bio, she talks about how her primary business, correct me if I'm wrong, is coaching and mentoring entrepreneurs in order to be able to get them to tell their story, which is one big aspect of her training business. So 
given we just talked about entrepreneurship, you obviously know a lot about about the philosophical concepts about entrepreneurship. Let's transition that into public speaking. Why specifically did you want to start becoming a trainer for public speaking? And what is it about public speaking that you love to do that you've been running your business now for 14 years? I well, and first of all, I was on the speech team in high school. Mm, so was I. <laughs> uh, right on. Right I on. always loved entertaining, performing, persuading people. These, the, again, these are things that I always enjoyed doing. And I was in theater. And um, so it was a natural fit for me when, and when I was in nonprofits, what, what actually happened was I got started in speaking uh, completely by accident. Mm. I took a job in a domestic violence organization running the children's program. And it turned out part of that job was going to be going into high school classrooms and talking to high school students about healthy and abusive relationships. Right. So I hadn't even expected this to be part of my job. And then over the 16 years I was in nonprofits, this is what I ended up doing, going out into the community and doing outreach. So it, it combined my love of performing and entertaining and persuading, but also I... I really love teaching. Right. I've always really loved teaching. And this, it all kind of came together when I had a cause or I had a mission. Had a and I wanted right. to persuade people to connect with this mission. So that's, I think, how public speaking became my thing. Hmm. And then when I got laid off, uh, I, I actually had a, a colleague who saw me speak. At, for some for some other nonprofit thing, and she said, "I want to know how to do that. I want to know how to be comfortable in my skin and get up on stage and have a good time and get in front of audiences and just be relaxed like you are." Right. And I went, "Ah, I know how to teach you that." Wow. So what that's was how. That, what was that I moment like? Into, when, What's that? What was that moment like when you found out, if, if from a business perspective, that there was demand in the market space for a skill that you had? Like, like what? Did, like, was that Eureka? Was like, oh my god, I should start doing this. How did that uh, correlate to you? It was amazing because I had actually toyed with the idea of speaking as a job or a business, but I thought that you had to be a motivational speaker. Right. I thought that if you wanted to make money in the realm of public speaking, that you had to have, you know, climbed Mount Everest or-, or uh, It be Tony you know, Robbins. Tony Robbins, or, or you won a medal in the Olympics, or you're, you know, I didn't realize there was a whole other market for teaching regular entrepreneurs and business people right. how to deliver an effective message. So that that was a huge light bulb moment for me. Right. And I think that's a good point because a lot of times, I mean, I started falling. I've been publicly speaking since I was 13 on my on my school's debate team. And when I was 20 years old, I was trying to ask myself this question of like, what's my passion? That was like, what do I want to do? And I realized I want to get into the speaking industry. And then I'm like, well, I only heard that like Hillary Clinton gets paid like 250000 to give a speech. So I guess we have to be a president, like an Olympic medalist. Like, and then I more do more research. I'm like, no, there's like almost like three, 4,000 events per day in America that are looking for speakers. And if you right. are in a specific niche, there is probably an event for that niche. If you can communicate something important in that niche, you can get hired to give speeches. And right. That's, that's an interesting. If you thing. have a skill or some knowledge now, I, and I will put a caveat in what you said about stories, just having a story is not enough. And Absolutely. we're right now we're putting a little bit too much emphasis on storytelling, I think, uh. 
rather than actually putting the emphasis on having a story that helps illustrate your core message. So if you have a message and you have some skills and some knowledge to impart, and you can do that in an engaging way and connect and interact with your audience through stories, using stories as a tool, um, then literally there are millions of opportunities for you to go out and be a speaker and you don't have to be a keynote speaker and you don't have to be a motivational speaker. There are a lot of other things you can do in the speaking world. So for you to expand on that, the story isn't the message. The message is the message. The story is the way to communicate the message. The story is the illustration of the message. Right. And when you think of it, when you look at it that way, so some people use slides. I personally love slides. I love PowerPoint and I'm, and I use it well. I don't put a bunch of bullet points and all that. I use images and a few words and so forth. Um, so, you know, visuals are a tool. Props, demos are a tool. Storytelling is a tool. Uh, activities and exercises are tools. Right. So I want people to understand that storytelling is a tool. It's a way to illustrate your point, but it's not the only tool. Right. And if you just want to stand up and tell stories, then you're a storyteller. You're not a speaker. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that because I think a, a lot of times, you know, the messages that really stand out or the speeches, I guess, that really stand out to us have sort of a philosophical foundation that grounds the essence of the speech and the stories, the personal experiences, the historical and contemporal, uh, contemporary examples illustrated in the speech ultimately relate back to that philosophical foundation. But when it's just a story right. on its own, I mean, then you could just read a book, right? Like, what's the point of that? Yeah, exactly. Or watch a movie. That's probably better. <laughs> movie, movies and TVs are great illustration, are great stories told for the purpose of story, sometimes to make a point. Right. But yeah, I mean, or go to a storytelling festival. And I mean, this is another thing. I have also uh, presented, if you call it that, we call it telling, but I have been a teller at a storyteller's um, event. Uh, I didn't even and know storytellers' events was a thing, to be honest. <laughs> it's a thing. And um, yeah, and I told a story. I told a 10-minute story about something from my life. And there doesn't have to be a point. There doesn't have to be a lesson. Pretty much there were seven of us. And, and this is an ongoing event called the Storytellers Project. Anybody could look it up. It's all over the country. It's uh, organized by USA Today. Okay. And, um, you know, pretty much everybody had some sort of a lesson or a point. But it wasn't really for the, the, the stories for the purpose of entertainment. It, right. And they tell you when you get on stage, they tell the audience, this is not a TED Talk. <laughs> this is not a presentation. You know, they, they want to set the audience up for something that is just purely entertainment. Right. Um, I want to back up a little bit now. Now you said mm -hmm. um, you you had the love of entertaining and capturing an audience's attention and you mix that with your uh, desire and passion to teach and then you found your skill set, which was crafting messages and you combined all three of those together. I want mm -hmm. to talk about the first part. When did you realize and why did you realize that your ability to entertain and capture an audience's attention, no matter what the audience is, whether it's at a speech tournament or whether at, it's at a presentation, is something you enjoy. Like what part of your brain or your, how do you communicate why you care about getting people to listen to you? I think probably, as I said, I always love performing and whatnot, but but putting all together and really getting, getting the, um, sort of realizing how it really all came together and really falling in love with the whole package was definitely working with high school students. Interesting. Okay. Because 
that is a tough audience. Yeah. We've all been high school students. We know how rough they are. Luckily for me, this was before cell phones. This was in the early, early to mid nineties when I started this, yeah. but um, I was actually scared to death, you know, cause I was used to working with little kids and I thought, Oh, high school students are going to be so brutal. Right. And so I like to say everything I learned about speaking, I learned from high school students and because really I discovered that there were all of these pieces that came together, but when you get all the pieces together, you create this incredible connection and relationship with your audience. Right. And so for high school students, it included everything from building trust to demonstrating my respect for them, to listening to what they had to say and what they wanted to share, um, to using humor, uh, and there was to, something important when you got their attention that made you like feel like you want to continuously, I guess for like the rest of your life, get people's attention through captivating <laughs> presentations. Get people's attention. That just sounds so terrible. But uh, so are you saying what specifically happened? No, I'm saying like, so when the high school, once you started connecting uh. with high schoolers and you started really getting their attention, was that a trigger in you that like, like, I guess my question is, did you have to get super introspective in the 90s and really analyze the things that have happened in your life up till that point to come to the objective conclusion that you enjoy performing? And how did you know you enjoyed performing? <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe I did not come to that conclusion at that time. Right. I think it was much later. Okay. It was probably more about when I started this business. Gotcha, gotcha. Because I, I enjoyed connecting, so I always loved performing. And then once, when I got into this world of teenagers, I realized how meaningful it was to me to make a difference in someone's lives. Right. These kids would come up to me, I, I'd see them two, three years later, I wouldn't recognize them. And then they say, they would say, you came to my high school classroom three years ago right. and, you know, and you really made an impact. So it was, I think when I actually started this business mm. was when that really, when I, when I kind of did that reflection on why I really wanted to do this and what I had to offer to the world. Right. Um, and then I really could, was able to go back and see how everything from the time I was little and, per, and you know, putting on little shows for my parents' guests all the way up to this point, right. all of the pieces had come together to, to this. And, and so if that, I think that's what you're asking. And it really probably didn't all come together about kind of my whole lifetime of leading me to this point until about 14 years ago. Yeah, no, that makes, I, I'm really happy you said that because like, that's, that's kind of how I like to think of, of, of coming to this, 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 this understanding of, of why stage, why performance, why public speaking. And when you, the thing you just said that when you were making little presentations for your parents or like little shows, I mean, that triggered just me, me just right now because that's what my mom forced me to do when I wanted to be a singer. She would force me to get the remote and like she, she I don't know if she thought I had talent, but she knew I wanted to do it. So she would force yeah. me in front of family or friends and just be like, just go do it. <laughs> horrible singer, a horrible dancer. But, I, but like that, I think, created this like subliminal subconscious emotion in me that got rid of the fear of the stage, which is really important. And I think this is a good transition now because now my question is, after 14 years of running this business, what is your best advice for someone listening to this podcast to get over the fear of public speaking? Best advice, um, really my best advice for not being afraid of speaking and also just being a more effective speaker is to get over yourself 
and stop trying to impress people. When you come into, when you approach speaking from this place of trying to be uh, the funniest person in the room, the smartest person in the room, the person with all the answers, you, number one, put a ton of pressure on yourself. And number two, you make yourself not relatable to right. the audience. Right. So. Uh, you know, my advice is to focus on serving the audience and not not focus on yourself and how you, I mean, yes, you want to focus on how you come across. I don't want to put it that way. But don't try to be the funniest and smartest and most clever person in the room. Just let go of that and focus on serving. How can I create a great experience for the audience and how can I provide what they need and want and care about and balance that with what I need, what results I need from the presentation, right? How do I balance their needs with my needs? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So I think service is a, a super uh, important concept to bring up because I think when it comes to public speaking, you are on the stage and your audience is there and sometimes they've paid money to, and they've taken their time to watch you. Taking their time and paid money, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, your, your primary purpose has to be at some level, how do I serve this audience? How do I bring value, in, whether it's in the form of entertainment or persuasion um, or, or an interesting message, to get them to feel as if they've had a well-worth time? And I think that starts the beginning, the framework of constructing an effective message that's authentic. Yeah, and this, does, this isn't just for, you know, uh, conference speaking or professional type speaking. If you're a person who has to give reports at your job or speak to the board of your organization yeah. or anything like that, service should always come first because people don't like feeling like you're wasting their time. Yep. And it doesn't matter what envir environment you're in. Look at how many meetings we go to in the workplace that are just wasted, wasted time. Don't be that person. Be the person who values the time of the people in the room, whether they're paying you or whether it's something at work or whether it's some little free presentation down at the lions club or the rotary, you know, um, that should always be your first consideration. I think that's a, that's a good point as well in terms of bringing up places outside of, um, traditional public speaking or what it has you, uh, in terms of actual interpersonal communication. To me, I think all speaking is public speaking at some level, right? Like what we're doing right now, it could be watched by 100,000 people and that would be a pretty <laughs> public for our conversation. Um, so in terms of interpersonal communication, how vital do you think public speaking training is or how much of a part of, of your business model in terms of your training is getting people to communicate effectively with other people versus just mm -hmm. like an, an audience of 1,000 people? I do actually have clients who come to me for interpersonal communication issues. It is not what I market myself as doing because right. that's not my that's not my preferred uh, thing. Right. But I, so I like to say that we're humans speaking to humans. Yeah. And my my book is called Presenting for Humans, and the sub the subtitle is Insights for Speakers on Ditching Perfection and Creating Connection. So I am always coming from a place of we're humans speaking for speaking to humans and to focus on connection if you want to get any kind of results. 
So, and by results, that doesn't necessarily mean people buying your thing or signing up for your thing. In interpersonal communication, what results are you looking for? Usually we're still trying to persuade somebody of something or, you know, there's some purpose to interpersonal communication as well. Right. So I go back to being a human, speaking to humans and focusing on the, the human connection. And actually the things that I was mentioning uh, that I learned from high school students, uh, you know, showing that you respect the other person, really listening to what they're saying, right. um, building trust, all of these things that are that are important in public speaking those are also things that are important in interpersonal communication right absolutely i agree and the the, the cool thing is i was actually teaching a class on uh public speaking earlier this morning and and that's what i was trying to tell uh the kids that i was teaching which is that a lot of this stuff is useful in terms of giving a speech but a lot of it is also really useful in terms of interpersonal communication and the example i gave was one of uh one of the girls i worked with she's 10 years old she was trying to make a speech about why People don't forgive each other, and we need people to forgive each other more for a society to be more happy. But, like, the speech just was all messy and all over the place, so I was trying to give her a structure. And then at one point, I ended up recalling a personal experience, which is, look, my uh, dad's grandma, my dad's mom's brother, so my grandma's brother, uh, mm -hmm. had not spoken to my grandma in about 15 years because they had a fight. They had a feud. And they uh, had a pretty, pretty big feud for 15 years to not talk. And this past August in 2019, I went over to his house and I had a very clear, just easy conversation with him, which is like, you know, you both are getting older and you don't have the rest of infinity to live. You really want the last really meaningful years of your life to be stuck in this feud. Like you should forgive her for whatever it was. It was 15 years ago and go see her. And that, I don't, that communication style eventually led for us in the next two weeks to all have dinner together. And it was an amazing thing. And That's amazing. And the purpose of that was I'm a, I like to classify myself as a public speaker, but those are the moments when speaking matters. That is far more valuable than speaking to an audience of a thousand because that is where the, the beauty of communication actually makes a fundamental difference. And having some skills in terms of just understanding general public speaking can get you in those intimate moments to make a human connection with another human being who has dealt with the same things I've dealt with, which is lack of forgiveness and getting them to open up to forgive to then ultimately leave a more, you know, healthy life, beautiful life. Yeah. You're talking about, you know, um, you're talking about also things like being clear, being concise, being compelling, right. um, you know, being um, assertive. And again, those are, those are uh, strong interpersonal skills if you learn them. But if you practice public speaking enough, you will learn how to do those things from the stage. You have to be concise. You have to be compelling in order to persuade people. And you definitely have to be assertive, especially when you're, you know, you're speaking to an audience and you have people who are disagreeing with you or who are hostile or, I mean, I, so as I mentioned, I spoke on domestic violence. Right. So in high school classrooms, I would walk into the room and all the boys in the room would automatically assume I was there to bash men. Right. So I came, I had to come from a place right off the bat of, you know, getting them on my side. Then I spoke in middle school classrooms about healthy sexuality. This is through Girls Incorporated. And so I, that was an uncomfortable topic for many of the students. And when I spoke to the puberty classes in fifth grade, I had to run the whole, um, the whole program past their parents first. Right. 
Right. I'd so imagine. then I had to talk to parents about why their 10-year-olds needed to understand all these things. And then I founded a gender equity organization that was all about Title IX. And I dealt with audience members who said, Title IX is killing men's sports. So, I mean, right. I really went, went from one organization to another that had some sort of controversial or uncomfortable topic. And I learned to, to get people on my side. I learned how to talk about difficult topics and discuss things that were complex and complicated in a way that helped people understand and in a way that I could be persuasive and get and get people to buy in. So all of these things that I learned from my years doing especially that kind of speaking was directly applicable to interpersonal communication. Yeah, and, and Lisa, as much as society would like to classify that as a soft skill, that's not soft at all. I mean, like, it's, it's phenomenal to me that we still think communication skills are soft skills. You have to get people who have a fundamental disagreement with you that is irrational. They have no objective reasoning that makes sense. It's just purely subjective belief systems influenced by random things. And you have to take those belief systems and figure out how to toy with them to get your message across. I mean, if you can't do that, you're never going to be able to address any cause of anything you want to do, in this case for you, gender equity, it's such an important thing. It's not soft. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the article that you and I were both both looked at, on, both read on LinkedIn, right? The one about public speaking being soft skills. Right, right. Um, and, 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 you know, people are starting to get away from that. I mean, Warren Buffett was quoted in that article, which was funny because I also quoted him in my blog post like 10 years ago from the same quote right because that talk was in 2008 to columbia students i believe yeah exactly so uh yeah i mean if warren buffett thinks public speaking is not a soft skill then i think we should all get on board board with that but it is absolutely not a a soft skill And, and as they pointed out in that article you do not change minds without persuasion and emotion you do not change attitudes and beliefs and change people's minds without being able to persuade them and reach out to them emotionally. That is not a soft skill. Right. So yeah. <laughs> my rant for the day. No, I hundred percent believe that. I mean, we have a whole industry, a multi-billion dollar industry called management consulting. And I just like, I like I'm, I'm in business school right now. I'm a senior. And I asked my press, I was like, what is management consulting? He was like, you hire a consulting company. They come to your business and they help you manage it. And I'm like, okay, so what do they really do? And, and honestly, he was just like, they honestly just help you better communicate. It's like we have entire industries built on helping the world's biggest companies, multi-billion dollar companies, because they're losing millions of dollars because they can't effectively communicate. I mean, there's nothing soft about it at that point. Yeah. Awesome. So um, I want to get a little bit deeper into crafting a message. So you work a lot with with entrepreneurs and and people who do some of their own stuff. What is your... uh, coaching philosophy and steps that you take when you get a new client to sort of figure out what their message is and then how you can package that into something that they can actually speak about? It's different for everybody. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't have kind of like your five-step system or whatever, you know, the guru. (laughs) So there's no system because everybody's different and everybody has different needs. I do have a philosophy of public speaking. And the, the philosophy is, number one, that it's fun. Um, number two, it's an awesome way to express yourself creatively. And I think, I think people miss that. They miss the creative expression aspect of it. 
and that it is an accelerated approach to developing an intimate and trusting relationship with your target audience. It's accelerated, right? We've talked about that no like and trust factor. The best way to develop the no like and trust factor is get your face in front of people. So my philosophy informs my coaching and training in that I, I really try to help people. I try to help my clients see how they can make this fun for themselves by making it engaging and fun for the audience. And again, people would say fun. My topic isn't fun. My topic is, you know, finance or, or technology or whatever. And believe me, I've worked with Microsoft. I've worked with a lot of engineers, software engineers, electrical, mechanical engineers. I work with people in the finance industry. They come to me specifically because they want to be more engaging. They want their presentations to to be more fun and they want to be more lighthearted. A lot of people come to me because they feel so buttoned down when they speak and they take themselves way too seriously. So um, this is my philosophy, really. I mean, what I just said, and also, you know, if you stop taking yourself so seriously and you start looking at how you can engage your audience and interact and connect and do all these things that I've talked about, um, be human, tell engaging stories. And I also really, I like to teach people how to do, how to create their own exercises and activities that illustrate their points, but also give the audience a chance to do their own work. Um, that's it. Just make it fun for yourself and make it fun for them. And so that's kind of what I focus on with my clients. But obviously there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we have to talk about. We have to talk about structure, Yeah. how do you structure it. So you lead them down a path to your desired result. How do you open in a way that gets them immediately engaged? How do you close in a way that wraps up your message with a bow? You know, there's all these other things within that, right? Is, is that what you uh, is that what you've noticed from coaching? I haven't worked with a lot of professionals who are in the who have technical information that they have to communicate. So is that what you've noticed that when you've worked with these people, it's harder for them to step outside of just the like the code, for example, and get the code to make sense to other people? Yes and no, because most people that I've worked with can tell you in plain English what they do and what their what their work is. Most people in finance can tell you in plain English if they have to, right. <laughs> you know, what you need to know. So, but yes, one of the one of the tools that I use in my corporate training is everybody gives a three-minute presentation. So when I do corporate training, we do half a day of content and then the whole rest of the first day and the second day are practicing, practicing a three minute presentation where you absolutely have to get your whole message into this three minute box and you have to engage and you have to have an opening and a middle and a closing and you have to have a call to action and all these things. And so when I help people kind of get get down to really deconstruct to what deconstruct their message down to kind of what what are the most core points etc etc they're very well able to get out of their heads and and make it real for an audience whether it's code or or uh or numbers or something like that 
So for you, it's it's not that these people literally just don't know what to say. It's that it has it, your, what your value proposition is is that you take it to the next level in terms of engagement value. Yes, partly. Um, people don't know what to say. They, I mean, sometimes people don't know what to say. Part of the reason people don't know what to say is because they have too much to say. Right, right. So one of, uh, probably one of the biggest things I do with my clients is just narrow down their vast scores of knowledge into bite-sized pieces. So most people I work with have too much to say. They know too much (laughs) and they need to know, they need to cut out everything that's extraneous. So that's something that I really help them with. So they know what to say, but they don't know how to narrow it down. They don't know how to say it in a way that gets the audience on their side and engaged with their message. A lot of times people want to give too many facts and data. This no, the the nonprofit um, sector is notorious for this. Yes, they want to tell you how many people they serve and how many, how long they've been in business. They want to give you all these numbers because that's what funders ask for. Right. But regular people out on the street who you know may want to give you 25 bucks or may want to volunteer, they don't care about all that. So I really try to get my clients to, yeah, to narrow it down. What do people care about? Right. <laughs> how can you make that engaging? How can you how can you cut out anything extraneous so that you're just getting to the real core message? Right. I think I think that makes sense. I think I think that's really good strategy to try to figure out how we can take this abundant amount of experience that I have and condense it into a presentation that's actually consumable and, and interactive. Right, and I have tools for that too. I mean, we don't all do, we don't do this all in our head. Right. I have worksheets, I have, you know, I have all kinds of um, tools that I use with my clients and my training clients um, to, to actually write things out and, and reflect on things. And so we're not doing it on the fly. There's a process Process, but not a system. Let's put it that way. Makes sense. Um, I have a specific question to you about body movement. Specifically, I saw this LinkedIn post the other day about pacing. Um, Someone Mm -hmm. was like, just saying like, uh, they get really annoyed when public speakers pace back and forth when it's not effective as almost as if they are just imitating every TED speaker they've seen, but the pacing doesn't have some type of intrinsic value that is synonymous with the content of what they're saying. What is your coaching opinion on how people should use their body on stage in regards to moving back and forth. I am a fan of bringing out what is naturally best and strongest in my clients. And because my clients are not for the most part, professional speakers, I do not give them uh, a hard time about body movements and ums and uhs and things like that. Now, that's not to say if if those things become distracting, uh, especially if they become egregious and somebody is literally pacing back and forth or they're doing some repetitive movement with their hands or they're saying um and uh every 10 seconds, then we're going to address it. Right. But again, I kind of go the opposite direction of the overly rehearsed speaker. I have seen mostly TEDx talks. I mean, TED TED speakers get pretty good coaching right. and they get a good amount of time to work on their talks. Now I've seen TEDx speakers who aren't getting the best coaching. 
um, or maybe who are coming from the Toastmasters model of speaking where every single movement and facial uh, expression and gesture is memorized. I am not a fan of that. I, I do not like a, to see a speaker that is overly rehearsed and I do not connect or relate to a speaker that's overly rehearsed. So there's a balance though, right? There's a balance. I mean, I want my, I want my clients to practice and I want them to feel comfortable in their skin so that they're not grasping for what their next line is. But for example, I don't have a problem with people using notes, right? Why shouldn't they use notes? They're not professional speakers. They're not getting paid to memorize a 20 minute presentation or a 45 minute presentation. Right. And for me, I'm really, I'm coming from a place of let's be real here. And let's not over rehearse movements and gestures, uh, but let's also not completely wing it right. and not pay attention and not be aware of what your body is doing. I do work with my clients on um, being present, right. right? being present and in the moment, because when you're present and you can get out of your head and be in the moment, in your body, in the room, seeing the people who are there, you're less likely to do these kinds of distracting and repetitive movements because you're aware of what's happening in the moment. So, so working on more on content development versus just all the technical body skills, really. Yes, for the most part, although I do work on delivery right. with my clients. It's just um, I do to be able to yeah express some emotion and you know so forth. Um, am I echoing? No, you're good. You're good on my end. Okay. I, I'm hearing it myself. Um, yeah, so, that makes sense. So, yeah. So, delivery is important. And I, would, I wouldn't I would say delivery is less important than content. But I think for non-professional speakers or as people who are just starting out or people who are doing, you know, uh, different kinds of speaking, breakout speakers at conferences, I just do not see the value in being overly memorized and overly rehearsed in all of your facial expressions and, and gestures and movements. It's distracting. It's right. distracting and annoying. Yeah. I was, I was teaching pacing the other day to some of my, my kids and they were just walking back and forth like, like, it, like it, it was no tomorrow. And I was like, all right, we have to, Stop walking back and forth this much. I'm also going to turn the light on because I've just noticed it got really dark in this room. Oh, so. it did get dark all of a sudden. Yeah, it's winter here in Jersey. <laughs> um, cool. Hey. The other thing I really... Well, so you just mentioned this and um, I want to talk to you about it because I don't know a lot about it. So I think you'll be able to give me some valuable insight. Um. This whole idea of Toastmasters specifically focusing on like facial expressions. Now, I don't know a lot about Toastmasters and I don't really care if you bash them or not. That I don't, I don't really care. I just want to know why, like, do you have some experience? Do you know knowledge in the industry? Is that really what their public speaking philosophy is? Is just facial expressions in every little intricate body movement? I would not say it's Toastmasters philosophy. Okay. I I think it's more of just an institutionalized habit that has been passed down over the years. I have not been in Toastmasters. I have a lot of friends who are Toastmasters. Um, and I have a lot of friends who are in Toastmasters who feel the same way I do. Right. About that kind of old style stagey way of presenting. There are a lot of people in Toastmasters who who 
want to change that. Also, not every Toastmasters club is the same. Right. right. So there are Toastmasters club that, clubs that you'll go to that are, you know, they're all really different from each other. I mean, they have certain um, guides that they follow, but it really depends, you know, who's in the group. And for example, there are these advanced Toastmasters groups where a lot of professional speakers still go to practice their uh, their presentations. Right. Um, but those are also, those groups are full of other professional speakers, right? right? You can also go to Toastmasters groups where there are literally people in the room who never speak outside of Toastmasters and never speak in front of a real audience right. where people aren't maybe that supportive or you have your, somebody's serving lunch and you're having to talk over clanking plates and, and people, you know, talking to each other. So I have mixed feelings about Postmasters, and this is no secret. I've written about it before. I've talked about it before. Uh, I just, I think Toastmasters is a great place to go uh, for a beginning speaker, who does, especially who doesn't have a place to practice. Right. Toastmasters gives you a built-in audience. They give you built-in structure for your first 10 speeches. And it's a good opportunity to just try things out. But I disagree with counting ums. I just I disagree with a lot of the things they do, and I disagree with uh, with that really stagey style of performance that I see a lot of Toastmasters do. So I say there's a balance. You have to get out in front of real world audiences where people are going to, uh, you know, maybe people will heckle you. Judge maybe will, people will yeah. disagree with you. You know, maybe 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 you have people who are in the room like this with their arms crossed and, you know, a scowl on their face. I mean, you just have to get out there and deal with the real world. So it's it's a good practicing ground, but I would not suggest that that be your be all and end all of speaking training. The other thing about Toastmasters is you don't get really into, you know, you get a tiny bit of individualized feedback, Right. but it's not like actually going through a training program or a coaching program where somebody is working with you one-on-one, hands-on, and you can actually work on a presentation that's longer than seven or 10 minutes. Right. So Makes those sense. are my thoughts. Cool. Um, my last couple of questions, and then I'm gonna let you get out of here. Uh, last real question is, is just about the business that you're operating. How did you start getting Microsoft as a client? Like how did this stuff just start developing for you? <laughs> It's funny because when I started this business 14 years ago, I had somebody message me on LinkedIn and said, you know, you really should be doing corporate training because you could be making so much money for one day of training. And I went, oh, now I have weird lighting coming in my office. You, you, I, look, you look good on me. You're good here. My, my son has shifted just like yours has. Let's yep. see, where do I go that I don't have a big light on my face? Um, I, and I was like, corporate training, that sounds gross to me. Like, do I have to wear a suit? And are all these people in the room in like suits and ties and you can, this is how, this is what I dress like to speak, you know? Um, but yeah, after a while, uh, people just started finding me. I was very, I became very findable on Google in 2007. I hit number one on Google for public speaking coach. Well, were you putting out content? Like why was that happening? Blogging. Blogging. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I had, I, at the time I was blogging six days a week. I had a very active blog. It still exists. It's called speak Schmeek, but now I maybe post once a month. Um, but now I post more places like medium and LinkedIn and whatnot. Right. 
Um, people just started finding me through Google, honestly, because I was became very visible online. Right. And then, you know, the more you get, the more you get um, training clients, the more they come to your website and they see that you do corporate training and then they see who you've trained. Um, Microsoft was actually re a referral. And right. so I also get a lot of referrals from people who, who are, you know, I know somebody who's looking for a speaking coach. Who do you know? Somebody posted it on Facebook, one of my Facebook friends. And I said, oh, yeah. That, they, and they were looking for exactly what I do. Right. Small teams, 15 to 20 people, day and a half of training. They wanted something lighthearted and upbeat. That's me. I raised my hand and I sent my info over. And um, again, this is a small team within Microsoft. Right, right, right. right. That's, my, that's my sweet spot. Um, and now I've worked with them a couple times, but, um, do you work alone? Do you have a lot of employees as well? Or is it mainly, Oh, I work alone. I'm a lone wolf. You like being alone. <laughs> that makes sense. Makes sense. Awesome. Okay. My final question. And this is the question I try to ask everyone on the podcast. As long as I don't forget to ask them this question, Lisa, <laughs> are you happy right now in life? Very happy. Good. That's a good, um, thing. as I said, I'm an optimist. So even when things are, even when I'm having a hard time, uh, I can always see the silver lining. I can always see the possibilities. I can always see, you know, every Monday to me is a chance to start fresh. It so it helps when that California sun is on your face too all the time. A little bit of California sun. Now I'm not gonna. I, I actually have to be somewhere in about 40 minutes, and I'm gonna and I walk there because the little tiny town I live in, I walk everywhere. And um, yes, I'll go outside and it'll be about 80 degrees, a little too warm for my taste right now. That's but, um, and there are no fires right now. That, yeah, you guys are having a little problem with that. California been on fire for about three years. Yeah. Um, but yes, right now we're in a good place. The air quality is good. So um, I can't complain. Can't complain. That's all. That's how and we wrap I'm, it up. I'm here talking about public speaking, my favorite thing in the world. Yes, and you've given a lot of valuable insights as well. So you've really helped out uh, me as a aspiring speaker <laughs> learn a lot more about speaking. Um, but all right, that is Lisa. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You can just tell them where to find you on social, uh, and then we'll end it off. Yeah, my website is coachlisab.com. That's easy. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. And last name, Braithwaite. B-R-A-I-T-H-W-A-I-T-E. But if you go to CoachLisaB.com, you'll find all my social. And um, and I I can I tend to connect with pretty much everybody, but it helps if you tell me that you saw me or heard me on this podcast. Right. I would be more likely to connect that way. But I would love to connect with you. Awesome. That is Elisa Braithwaite. Thank you for being on the podcast. And we'll see you guys on the next episode of the Public Speaker Podcast.